Hey, what's up Bridgetown family? Tyler here letting you know that early bird registration for this year's Holy Spirit Conference is officially live right now on our website. It is $85, only $85 to register for this year, and you can find that at bridgetown.church slash holyspirit. We're going to be joined by Simon Ponsonby, a brilliant author and scholar from Oxford, by Jordan Sang, a beautiful practitioner who leads an incredible community called Blue Water Mission right in the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii, and then the wonderful songwriters and worship leaders Rich and Lydia Dikas from KXC Church in London. So you don't want to miss this. We've moved this year to the Portland Ballroom right in the heart of our city in an effort to make more space as we've sold out quite quickly in years past. So go ahead and mark your calendars January 26 and 27 in Portland. Uh, all are welcome and invited, and you're going to want to register very soon to make sure you lock in a spot and the earliest rate possible. Bridgetown.church slash Holy Spirit. See you in January. John 15, 12 through 17. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. My friend Daniel uh, told me the story of a colleague who worked for an NGO serving in an African tribal village. And the chief of this uh, African tribe spoke decent English, and so they got a bit conversational. One day the chief asked this man, tell me about the American man. And instinctively he said, well, the American man works a lot. And the chief was stunned to find out that the American man or woman leaves their home, their closest relationships and place of belonging, to go somewhere else for the day's work, and that the American spends half of their waking hours away from the people in the place where they are most loved. And then that the work itself is commonly done in isolation behind a screen rather than with others. But, the NGO worker added as a saving grace, the American man or woman makes a lot of money. And without hesitation, the chief responded, so the American man is lonely. Community is the simple title of our current teaching series in practice, and we started off by defining community biblically as family, gift, and formation, and now we're inching toward the practical by talking about relationships within community. So Bethany got us started last week talking about the church. Daniel, the same Daniel that I was just sharing about, he's going to be joining us next week, Daniel Grothy from New Life Church in Colorado Springs, to talk about community within the home. And today, I want to talk to you about friendship. 
Within a community like this one, you will develop deeper relationships with some than others. You will form friendships. And that is a good thing, not a threat to community. So what does Jesus teach us about friendship? How do we savor the gift of friendship to its fullest? And what role are friends supposed to play within a larger community like ours? So community is friendship. We will take that in two parts. First, friendship with Jesus and then friendship with others. So we'll begin with friendship with Jesus. Live your truth is the fastest growing religion in the Western world. Truth is being recast as an entirely subjective concept, something neutral that I possess, like a favorite color or a favorite food or a preference between coffee and tea. Truth is something that I possess that emerges from within my individual identity rather than something that I am possessed by that makes a claim on my individual identity. I was on an international flight last week, and when um, the flight attendant came by and asked if I wanted beef or pasta, which, by the way, the answer is always pasta in that situation. You do not want the red meat that they are serving you in no man's land somewhere over the Atlantic. I promise. So when they came by and said, and I said, I'll have the pasta, I was expressing a desire from within. I was choosing one path from my future over another. And that, says the culture around us, is the same as truth. It is a desire from within me that then becomes defining for me, like which microwave dinner I will have in seat 38J. From this foundation, spiritual relativism has then emerged with increasingly increasing popularity, which is a term for creator as a personal choice, not an independent and very real being. Spiritual relativism strips God of personality and independence and turns God into a disembodied force emanating energy and positive vibes into the universe. God is equilibrium or calm or peace or happiness. And that works if the biggest issue you're facing is whether you want the beef or the pasta. But try counseling someone in the midst of real hardship and suffering to tap into the energy of the universe. I offer that counsel to a mother who's searching for her lost child in an Afghan refugee camp, or to a child in a hospital leukemia ward, or huddled with a civilian family amidst the violence of the Gaza Strip. Tell that to him or her uh, to, to transcend the circumstances of your life and tap into a state of serenity that is incomplete, if not offensive as a way of relating to life's meaning, purpose, and foundational truth in the midst of real suffering. And so Genesis barges into our world like the most welcome of interruptions, saying, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. Now your junior high grammar teacher would mark the Bible's first page with red ink, because it appears like the English translation of the Bible is grammatically incorrect. Then God, God is the Hebrew Elohim, which reads singular but can be plural based on the context. It's kind of like the English word pants. It's plural because there's two legs, but it's also singular. It's one pair of pants. Technically, it's grammatically off, but also it's exactly right. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. 
Now the singular Elohim is followed by the collective article, our, exactly. God is one and three. He is a singular being who at the very core of his identity is plural. God is not some disembodied amorphous blob emanating positive energy. God is not an elephant that we are all feeling around from different sides. And God is not a mountain that we are all hiking by different paths. God is holy trinity, says Genesis. Holy, as in completely other, altogether different and better than anyone that I've ever met. And Trinity, as in relationship, friendship. God is love at the very core of his identity. The stunning claim on the Bible's first page is not just that God is friendly, it's that God is friendship. And so if we're going to talk about friendship between you and I, we've got to start with the friendship that is within God. Because who we imagine God to be is the most decisive factor in the sort of friends that we will become. And as the story moves forward from creation to Old Testament, the friendship that we first see within the Creator is then revealed in friendship with creation. Exodus 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Commenting on this story, the 4th century theologian Gregory of Nyssa said, we regard falling from God's friendship as the only thing dreadful, and we consider becoming God's friend the only thing worth of honor and desire. Most of us come into the family of God by way of friendship. Somewhere along the way, we discover ourselves beloved by God, at ease in His company, warm in the welcome of His friendship. We feel safe in God's presence. Safe enough to let our guard down and to be known and to ask for help and to let ourselves be loved apart from some sort of projection or spiritual performance. But every opposing spiritual force in the world fights that revelation from that day onward. The spiritual enemy of your soul has one great ambition to downgrade you to something less than the friend of God. To make you feel unsafe in the presence of the God who welcomed you safely. It is not denial of doctrine that the enemy takes aim at. It is friendship to convince you to put back up the guard that you let down, to keep some part of yourself unknown, to stop asking for help and start trying to sort it out on your own, to let yourself be loved in conjunction with your projected self or your spiritual performance. That is what Gregory of Nyssa means by falling from God's friendship. It's not that God would leave us behind for a more hip crowd or block his, our contact on his cell phone or something. Friendship thrives in relational safety, and friendship with God stalls and suffocates when that relational safety gets threatened. And what we glimpse in Moses, we gaze upon in Jesus. Jesus' ministry plays out in front of the backdrop of friendship to Peter and to Judas, to John and Mary Magdalene, to Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and to a whole host of others along the way. Jesus has long, slow meals with plenty of different folks. He once keeps a wedding reception going that was so rambunctious they've run out of wine. Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, face to face as one speaks to a friend just as God spoke to Moses for 33 years. Everywhere he went, Jesus invited people to become his friends. Of course he did. He's the image of the invisible God, the God who is friendship. 
The word friend appears 29 times in the New Testament. 23 of those are in the Gospels. That means Jesus has a whole lot to say on this topic. Look back with me at our teaching text, John chapter 15, verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. In short, there is nothing about me that I've tried to keep you from knowing. There is no part of my life or identity that I haven't let you in on. Real friendships require honesty and vulnerability, and God incarnate has given us exactly that. Vulnerability, undressing himself of every power to take on our condition, submitting himself in birth, life, and death, even entrusting his life's work of renewal, handing us the keys of the kingdom and calling us, the church, his body, his presence, representation, and reputation on the earth. And he's given us honesty. I mean, Jesus held nothing back from us. He told it all to us, and he gave it all to us. His promises, like the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, and I'm going to send you my spirit, and I'll come back just in the way you've seen me go to finish my work. He gives us his promises, and he gives us his sorrows. He told them over and over and over again that he was going to the cross, that it would hurt him and disorient them. And in his final hours, God let us in on divine vulnerability. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Couldn't you stay awake with me? Jesus, in a moment of need, is asking for a friend. The same way that we process with a friend when we're let go from a job or sit speechless next to a friend in a hospital waiting room or are held by a friend as we weep in a moment of loss. Jesus doesn't just call us friends. He honestly asks for our friendship in return. Could there be anything more honest and vulnerable? Any more true representation of friendship? And after Christ comes the era of the body of Christ, or the church, which starts on the pages of Scripture, but we continue to live in now. And the church uh, got its start in the first century Greco-Roman world. And many of the ancient gods of Greek mythology aren't at all interested in friendship. Either they don't need it, or they don't have time for it, or some combination of the two. And in that world, here comes this new spirituality that is praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and is baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a community celebrating a God of love, a God who is initiating friendship with anyone and everyone who will give him the time of day. The very friendship that began on the pages of Scripture within God in Genesis is then freely shared with us in Jesus, and it's even shared within us in the church. That's the story. But of course, for any relationship between two people to be called friendship, it requires mutuality, right? Friendship without mutuality has a different name, stalking. <laughs> so the puzzle to friendship with God is mutuality. How could any relationship with God be mutual? God created us from nothing and then gave us everything. So what do you give someone who has everything, needs nothing, and has given you everything? Like, is friendship with God even possible, or is this just a beautiful analogy that inevitably breaks down like most analogies? Well, back to John 15, this time verse 12. My command is this, 
Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, what has Jesus commanded us? What, what is the command that makes us his friends? That we return his loving friendship by loving others. You see, friendship with God becomes mutual not when we give it back, but when we give it away. We love God. We express mutuality in the way that we love each other. And that is the bridge between friendship with God and friendship with others. So let's retrace the same steps through the biblical story, looking back exactly where we've been, only this time at this new vantage point of loving others. Starting in creation, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God said this immediately after placing Adam in the garden and then commissioning him to take care of it, overseeing creation. So Adam's got meaningful projects to pour his passion into and derive purpose from. Adam's living in a gorgeous place, a place filled with so much beauty that your dream vacation home in Big Sur can't hold a candle to it. Uh, he's got plenty of provision. This is Whole Foods, if everything was free. There's fancy cheeses and fresh produce, and oh, there's even samosas in the buffet. Adam has God all to himself, and yet still the Creator says, nope, something essential is missing. This isn't life to the full, not yet, because Adam's got all that, but he doesn't have a friend. It is not good that the man should be alone. It is that heartbreaking discovery at the end of Into the Wild, where after an adventure for the ages, fought for against a thousand obstacles, only to arrive at the longest of pilgrim at the destination of the longest of pilgrimages to discover happiness is only real when shared. This theme, which is introduced from the mouth of God in Genesis, then continues through the mouths of the prophets in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Take, for example, Micah chapter three. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster shall come upon us. You see, Micah is saying, in essence, if you think you can be friends with God and then use or manipulate or just relate by some standard less than God's sacrificial, dignifying love with other people, you are fooling yourself. Friendship with God is proven by the way that we follow his command to love one another as he loved us. And I've noticed that there's a tendency to either ignore the cry of the prophets altogether, or we find ourselves clasping our hands together in prayer far more than we find ourselves reaching out our hand to another person, or we apply Micah's words exclusively to the poor. And that might be a little bit closer, but it's still incomplete. Micah is not saying, give to world vision, serve at the women's shelter, advocate for the voiceless, and then critique those within the church who you don't think are doing as much as you're doing. As if mercy toward the marginalized justifies mercilessness toward my brothers and sisters. You see, this is about the poor, but it's also about all of our other relationships. It's about who and how you serve, and it's about who and how you befriend you see, as we often say around here, the aim and destination of our spiritual journey is not balance or personal peace. It's not even character formation as an end in itself. It is to become love. The humbling gauge of spiritual formation 
is am I becoming a person of love to the people who know me best and interact with me most frequently? How do I take my spiritual temperature by the gentle or harsh tone that I use toward my wife, by the patience or lack thereof that I use when parenting my children, by the interruptibility or lack thereof that I hold toward my neighbors, and by the way that I lovingly, sacrificially offer my presence to my friends or don't? About a year and a half ago, I had planned a surprise Mother's Day excursion to Bend. I was in my first year in Oregon, and I had heard legend of this desert place where the sun was always shining and the people were always happy. And I decided to find out if that mirage really did exist. But coming from New York, I was also entirely new to the whole concept of a family road trip. And I, I needed to get a, a topper to put on my car so that I could fit my kids' bikes in in the back, and Tim offered to loan me his. So we were leaving on a Thursday. I was meant to pick up the topper on Wednesday night, but in order to take this trip, I also had to finish a pile of work that was taking me forever to get done. I'd overcommitted myself, and I was scrambling to try to somehow get all the pieces in place so that we could leave town. I was supposed to pick up the topper at seven, but I just kept pushing it back. It was eight, and then it was 8.30, and then I texted him at 9 saying I needed a little bit more time, then I'd swing by. And Tim texted, hey man, I'll just bring it to you. And so when Tim and I were in my driveway together and he was schooling me on how to tighten one of these things down to the roof rack, I realized something. That I don't have time to do for anyone what he's doing for me right now. I have constructed a life that is so filled to the brim that I don't have time to be a good friend. I don't have time to loan a car topper to someone else and take it over to them and show them how to tighten it down to their car. It was a simple, ordinary moment, but it was also a profound moment of clarity for me. I'm not okay living like this because in 30 years time, I'm not gonna care about or even remember the work that I'm scrambling to get done tonight. I'm gonna care about Tim. I'll forget all the tasks, but I'll remember the friends. It's time to make some changes. And I did, and I'm still working on it. It's kind of like if I'm driving from Portland to LA and then find myself passing through downtown Seattle, I have this stunning moment of clarity that I'm going in the wrong direction, right? Now, turning around means that I've got a long way to go but now I'm moving in the right direction. I, I'm headed where I intend to go. And that's what happened to me in the driveway with Tim. Uh, I had a sudden and unexpected defining moment when I realized I'm going in the wrong direction. So I turned around. I've still got a long way to go, but at least now I'm headed where I intend to end up. I knew that I had given myself fully to Jesus, but I realized in that moment that I was holding myself back from other people that I was guarding my time and my energy in a way that was unhealthy and unbiblical. And if I wasn't giving myself to other people, especially the people close to me, it exposed an even more sobering truth that I hadn't, in fact, given myself fully to Jesus. Jesus, who followed this teaching in John 15 with a memorable prayer, the longest recorded prayer from the mouth of Jesus anywhere in the Bible, and you'll find it in John chapter 17. 
I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This prayer almost always gets applied on the on the most grand of scales. It's about global church unity. We've got to get unified across our traditions and denominations. And yes, I agree with that. But don't keep this prayer so safely far away. Let it in closer than that. Because Jesus' great longing is equally applicable on the smallest and most personal of scales in our friendships. That I might be one in friendship with others, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one in friendship. And the way of friendship we see in Jesus is carried across 2,000 years into the church when John, who recorded this prayer of Jesus, went on to write to the community that was founded in his name, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. It can be so tempting to sentimentalize this verse, but John isn't saying that God is the sentimental feeling that I have toward my family or my parents or my spouse or my church or my city. He's saying that all of these different relational spheres where I experience love somehow point me in the direction of the God who embodies love in the most potent sense. My relationships with others become friendship. They become mutual. Or sorry, my relationship with God becomes mutual by sharing his love freely with others. But receiving his love from others is also mutual, pointing me back toward him. So we, up to this point, have just been soaring in the clouds of friendship, and we need to rip this concept from the clouds and ground it right down here in the dirt where we actually live. Because Scripture paints a very compelling picture, but the actual day-to-day experience of friendship can be ordinary and underwhelming compared to biblical advertising. I recently came across this definition of friendship, which I found astonishingly, astonishingly accurate. Adult friendship is two people saying, I haven't seen you in forever. We should hang out more over and over again until one of you dies. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? That rings true. So the question is, how do we pull the compelling picture of friendship that is painted throughout the biblical story off the page and into the experience of our lives? Well, the good news is it's not nearly as complicated as you might think. The bad news is that friendship, as it's practiced in our world today, more commonly deforms us than it forms us. Most human relationships are diminishing the image of the communal God within you, not enlivening it, demeaning you, not dignifying you, hurting you, not healing you. And I'm a delayed gratification kind of guy, so let's rip the band-aid and just get the bad news over with first. In order to experience the truth of friendship as God created it and as Christ redeemed it, we need to start by acknowledging the warped and distorted pictures of friendship that we so commonly see and perpetuate. So let's talk about what friendship isn't. Eugene Peterson, writing about friendship, said, Each of us has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set eyes on us begin calculating what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us, make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a necessary category so they don't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are, as if we're in constant association, I'm sorry, and if we're in constant association with them, we become less. 
So I want to offer you three common distortions of friendship. The first one, isolation. The percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends has quadrupled in the last 20 years. 54% of Americans today say they feel like no one knows them well. It is not good that man should be alone. Our habits and technology and lifestyle, they're all training us more and more in the direction of isolation, tucked away safely in a cocoon of a social comfort zone that is killing me slowly and gently. You and I were made for friendship, and that requires risk. The risk of rejection and disappointment and betrayal and hurt. But that risk also comes with the irreplaceable and essential gift of friendship. You just don't get one without the other. Isolation kills. Friendship hurts. But it brings life. Take the risk. Second distortion, codependency. Friendship points us toward God. But friendship does not replace God. And when we try to get something that we were designed to get from God and God alone, from another human being, we end up destroying each other. Everyone gets hurt. Mike Mason says it like this. In each of us, the holiest and neediest and most sensitive place of all has been made and is reserved for God alone so that only he can enter there. No one else can love us as he does, and no one can be the sort of friend to us that he is. Apart from friendship with God, we are tempted to ask another human being to hold the full weight of our desire for belonging, and they can't. And when we ask a friend to hold that desire, their back buckles under the weight and everyone involved gets hurt. Alongside friendship with God, though, human relationships are free to be the creative gift that they were designed to be. So you've got uh, isolation, codependency, and then lastly, a, the last distortion, superiority. On an individual level, some of us befriend people who make us feel superior as a dysfunctional way to feed our false self. We befriend someone whose life is a mess because it makes me feel like I've got my life together as I offer them advice. Or someone who's insecure because it makes me feel like an expert. Someone who's needy because it makes me feel needed. We feed one another's false selves, burying rather than drawing out the true self from within. Is there a troubling trend in your friendships? A way of selectively letting people in because they feed a seemingly innocent but truly perverse need within you. And on a group level, we do something similar. Some of us form friendships who are bound together by a sense of superiority, right? A, a friend group that banters about everyone, mocking people who are into this or that or this. Or we form friendships around critique, cloaking our own insecurity in a garment of superiority. We leave a certain social circle feeling icky, like the quality of our time together is making us less, not more, because around these people it seems that the conversation always devolves to gossip. The issue with this sort of uh, group-based superiority is that it keeps us hidden, but friendship is about drawing us out. True friendship is safety in the company of another, remember? The safety of my true self and the company of another that points me to God. This warped expression of friendship that I'm labeling superiority encourages me to layer on fig leaves because no one is safe, not even those within the group. No one is safe when superiority is the ethic that binds us together. 
So having acknowledged what friendship isn't, we can then more readily define what friendship is. Picking up exactly where I left off in Eugene Peterson's definition of friendship, he goes on to say, and then someone enters our life who isn't looking, who isn't looking for someone to use, is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us, is secure enough not to exploit our weakness or attack our strengths, recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions, confirms what's deepest within us, a friend. So let me offer you, in place of those three distortions, three types of true friendship. The first one is friendships of delight. I want to start here because I think we should begin just by acknowledging that friendship is profoundly good. It can be formative and meaningful and challenging, but it's also light and joyful and really, really fun. Right? Plato says, you can learn more about a man in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. Play is essential for human health and development because the opposite of play is not study or work. The opposite of play is fear. When we are afraid, we stop playing and we grow quiet and serious with a guard up. We become afraid of looking foolish or of getting hurt. I become afraid of you. I lose my sense of ease in your presence and then I don't laugh or joke or play around. All to say, delighting in your friendships like laughing and joking and making memories, playing together, is a good sign. It is spiritually healthy. The kingdom comes when we share vulnerably to the point of tears, and the kingdom comes when we laugh hysterically to the point of tears. Both are signs of spiritual health. So first, delight. Then there's friendships of mission. Jesus befriended the twelve, but Jesus also made a number of unlikely friends like beggars and sex workers and tax collectors and lepers and Samaritans. So can you count among your friends someone you are intentionally prioritizing to keep in step with the way of Jesus? Someone that you are bearing witness to intentionally, like a coworker or a classmate or another parent that you tend to cross paths with, a college friend that you've kept up with, someone you met serving with your Bridgetown community, someone who stretches you and costs you to remain close to them, but you choose to remain close to them for the sake of friendship in the image of Jesus. You see, if our friend groups are to look like our rabbis, they will include a few who we are gaining nothing from who require more intention to include, and who therefore we need far more than they need us. And then finally, there's friendships of formation. Aristotle once said of friendship, a certain training and excellence arises also from the company of the good. Those who want to become great musicians or athletes or mathematicians will do so by surrounding themselves with people who are a little further down the road of excellence in their particular field than they are. And the same thing that holds for our hobbies also applies to our character. We are called up when the character of those that we surround ourselves with most closely calls us up. And on the flip side, we can also give each other permission to become less. Friendship can call us up, and friendship can be permission to compromise. St. Augustine, in his memoir, Confessions, recounts a relatively harmless night of childhood mischief when he and a few friends stole some pears off of a neighbor's tree. And as far as as crime goes, this was pretty small time. But that's kind of the point. 
that it wasn't a dramatic act. It was a subtle one. And as he reflects on this, he notes that alone, he never would have taken the pears. It wasn't the pears, but the desire to be a participant in the theft with others that caused him to pluck the fruit off the neighbor's tree. And on reflection, he got no pleasure from doing this. Friendship on that night made him, more, made him less rather than making him more. The Apostle Paul said to the church, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. What Aristotle and Augustine and Paul all seem to be saying is that choosing your friends is one of the most important spiritual choices you will ever make in your own formation. And I wonder if this is at least one of the reasons why Jesus stayed up all night in prayer before he selected the 12 that he would walk most closely with. Because Jesus knew that the company that we draw closest to us is our most formative company. Over the course of time, close friends begin to act just alike. They begin to form one another. They start to talk alike and dress alike and act alike. And that's not being weak or easily influenced. That is just human nature. Like it or not, you will become like your friends. Actively or passively, who you choose to spend time with is one of the most important formative spiritual choices that you will ever make. So who are your closest friends? What are they doing to you? Who are they making you? Or put as simple as possible, do you want to become like them? When I was 29, Hank, my first child, was born. And after bringing him home from the hospital, Kirsten went into what was clinically diagnosed as the most severe of postpartum depression. I took a week off of work because that was the allotted time and policy and because I did not have anyone in my life to talk any sense into me. I took a week off of work and then I went right back. And I can remember coming home day after day and leaning my head against the apartment door to listen inside for the sound of crying just so I would know what I was walking into before I turned the key. And I can remember every night around 6 p.m. hearing weeping coming from the inside of my house, not Hank's, but Kirsten's, before I walked in. Every single night, I saw her holding on for dear life. And then I left at 9 a.m. the next morning. My son had just come alive. My wife was struggling to stay alive. And I was escaping into writing sermons, weaving stories together in my office, narratives of healing and redemption while ignoring the needs for healing and the invitations for redemption that were under my own roof. And on reflection, the reason that I was doing that is because I like the world where I get to be the author. Because the world that I get to be the author always resolves, and within approximately 40 minutes. <laughs> but the world that I actually lived in, live in is one where I am not the author. I am a helpless cast member, unsure where the story is going, when, how, or if it gets resolved. And it certainly never seems to resolve according to the pen in my hand or the timetable in my mind. I did not have time for really living. 
Instead, I was hiding and covering up and busily protecting myself against the threat of being really alive. Then five years later, when I was 34, I moved across the country to Portland, Oregon. I became the pastor of a different church, and I had the opportunity to start over and to rewrite habits and norms and relational expectations. I took a two-month sabbatical between Brooklyn and Portland, and it was the best two months of my life. And Kirsten and I got to Portland with a plan. We had a plan for what she would prioritize and sacrifice and what I would prioritize and sacrifice and and what our whole life together was going to look like. And then something happened. She got unexpectedly pregnant and work took off a whole lot faster than I ever imagined. I was the pastor of a thriving church and the newly appointed national director of a global prayer movement. I had a book coming out all within a year. And thankfully, I had at least partially learned my lesson. I took a month off for Amos' birth. I made sure that Kirsten and Amos were there with me in the hospital each of those 30 days. And I made sure that I was there for my boys at home and trying to provide stability for those two amidst a medical diagnosis for their brother that was far too complex for their little brains, but an instability of their parental proximity that they could certainly feel and were disrupted by. And then after those 30 days of intentional presence were up, I was right back at full speed until a very close friend, one that I had met shortly after arriving to Portland, one that I had made within this new church community I'd become a part of, a friend who had grown into a close confidant, sat down with me over dinner on a Sunday night. This is a regular rhythm between me and this friend because You become like those you let in closest. And so I was trying to prioritize a rhythm with a friend who I wanted to become more like. And we sat down, and while I was chewing on Korean fried chicken, he said, hey, Tyler, I love you. And so I just want to reflect something back to you. You shared with me a few months ago the sort of husband you want to be and the sort of father you want to be and the deepest desires and dreams you've got for your life. And watching your life play out, I feel really concerned that who you want to be and the way your life is actually constructed today are incompatible. That there's a gap between who you want to be and who you're becoming if you keep on letting yourself become according to these rhythms. I was back where I had started five years before. I didn't have time for living. I was far too busy hiding, too busy covering up, too busy protecting myself against the threat of being really alive, too busy escaping into the world where I get to play author rather than let myself be battered around in the one where I am nothing but helpless cast member. I was right back where I started, only this time, I had a friend, a friend who was willing to really love me, a friend who was willing to come and find me where I was hiding, to recognize me behind that clever disguise that I love to put on, and to say, hey, take that off, man. Come alive. Really live and be really loved. We become like our friends, intentionally or unintentionally. So who have you allowed a shaping influence in your formation to? And what is friendship to that person doing to you? Is it making you more or less? And who in your life do you want to become like? And are you pursuing intentional, proximate friendship with that person? 
Jesus claims in John 15 that he is very selective and intentional when it comes to his friends. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus was welcoming to everybody. He shared meals with the marginalized. He didn't turn away the stranger. He allowed himself to be interrupted. But Jesus did choose the friends that he would commit his life, his earthly life to most closely. And Jesus did not go that deep with everyone. Jesus was comfortable with the fact that within his humanity, there were limits to his relational capacity. And so he concentrated his life to just a few. He never stopped being counterculturally welcoming to the masses, but he also never stopped prioritizing just a few friendships, no matter how big the crowd around him got. You can be welcoming to the many, but you can only go really deep with a few. And if Jesus was comfortable with the relational limits of his humanity, we've got to be too. Well then, how do we choose? How are we supposed to choose? Well, Jesus, in our teaching text, tells the 12, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. So maybe the better way to ask this question is, how did Jesus choose? And I think we get the first little hint to the equation of how Jesus chooses in Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27.9 reads, Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, but, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from heartfelt advice. Now, pleasant is a Hebrew word that literally translates sweet to the taste. And at the time that this proverb was written, there was no such thing as refined sugar. Uh, today, you can create sweet taste. You can cook with sugar. But back then, you had to discover sweet taste. In ancient Israel, no one had ever tasted a chocolate croissant. Ice cream was still thousands of years away. Your only access to sweetness was natural. Proverbs was written at a time when sweet to the taste couldn't be created. It had to be discovered. And Proverbs seems to be telling us here, you cannot create or manufacture true friendship. It can only be discovered. But there's more variables to this equation. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves says, the condition for having friends is that you want something besides friends. Those going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Friendships emerge as we're living passionate lives, not as we're sitting down deciding who we want to become friends with. If you want to make great friends, pursue Jesus. Follow hard after him, and then you'll discover that you're not alone. And those on the narrow road beside you as you follow hard after Jesus will share more in common with you. Uh, and they will share the most important thing in common with you, apprenticeship to the same rabbi. So how did Jesus choose friends? Well, Jesus built his life around the radical pursuit of God and his call as Messiah. And then he prioritized those who came along with him. How you choose friends is you build your life around seeking God generally and his call on your life specifically. And then you look up to see who your fellow travelers are. If romantic love brings forth an image of two people who are face-to-face, -face, the love that they share is passion, then friendship brings to mind the image of two people who are shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, running hard behind someone else. Their passion is their shared pursuit. Build a life around the radical pursuit of God and his unique calling on your life. Run hard after it and then look up and see who's running beside you. That's where you'll discover friends. Third, you need to pray. Jesus prayed before he chose his friends. He prayed all night before he chose the 12, discerning who the Father might invite him to bring in closest. So if you're having trouble finding friends, or finding the right friends, or prioritizing the right people, then pray. Ask for help. 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Are you choosing and prioritizing your friendships undiscerningly? Or are you asking God for this most formative relationship in your life? And then finally, practice the way of Jesus together in Portland. Or in short, live in community. The rhythms of our church may offer you no greater gift than just spaces to develop deep, true, formative friendships. So as pastors at Bridgetown Church, here's what we cannot do for you. We cannot choose your close friends and matchmake you to other people. But here's what we can do for you. We can order the life of our church around the rhythms of community, availing you consistent and repeated opportunities to develop virtuous friendships. So let me close here today, as practical as possible. Let me tell you something that you know intuitively, but tend to forget. Life is about relationships. On your deathbed, you will not be thinking about your accomplishments or your failures, what you got done or what you left undone. You will not be proudly or shamefully scanning your resume or your bank account. You will not be crossing off to-dos. When the lights are going out on your numbered days this side of eternity, you will not be thinking about whatever is stressing you out this morning. People. That's what you'll be thinking about. The people that you got to spend your life with. How you loved them or didn't. How you prioritized them or didn't. What you sacrificed to know them deepest or what got in the way. Your friendships, if they are lived in the way of Jesus, are quite possibly the most powerful force in your life, the most powerful to form you, the most powerful to fill you with joy, the most powerful to change the world, awakening the image of God from its slumber within our world of isolation and codependency and superiority. Most importantly, though, the most powerful to show you Jesus to awaken within you the safety and vulnerability of friendship with God through the image of friendship with God.